everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. I had some orders go south very frequently at the beginning and they were very expensive as a tiny small business. And we had to suck it up and make it right. I refunded part of it. I overnighted stuff. I covered the costs of it. I called the assistant and spoke to her personally and said, I'm so sorry, this is what occurred. It's on us. We really messed up and we're going to make it right. And just owning your mistakes, especially when you're a small business, hiding behind emails, pick up the phone. There's nothing like human contact, especially when things go south. Do not try and resolve a problem or a deeply rooted issue on an email. Have the balls to call the person and fix it. Sometimes it's best to get back to the basics. Whether you're talking business or just general life, it's easy to get caught up in the whirlwind of overthinking things when really all you need to do is keep it simple. Ellen Bennett knows this more than most, and she's built her company, Headley & Bennett, into an undeniable success by sticking to that principle. Headley & Bennett produces high-quality kitchenware that has been featured in more than 4,000 restaurants and cafes, adopted by celebrity chefs like Martha Stewart and David Chang, and is used by hundreds of thousands of home chefs every day. But the story started out much more modestly. Ellen began with a true grassroots approach, selling aprons out of her Mini Cooper, talking to and pitching every chef she knew, and working her connections to keep her business growing. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Ellen shares the story of how she hustled to build Headley and Bennett and all of the early struggles she had to work through to keep the train rolling. She gives advice to any young company dealing with production or shipping mishaps, and she explains how you can go about expanding through creative and authentic collaborations. Plus, she explains what it took to shift the company from selling exclusively B2B to now selling more than 80% direct to consumer. Ellen brought a ton of energy and ambition to the interview that didn't disappoint. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show and I would really love it. So please let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review, let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder and CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Ellen Bennett, the founder and CEO of Headley & Bennett. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on. You're the first person with a uh, outfit change that we've had before getting on. So it's a good day to have a new thing occur on a podcast interview. 
I love color and I brought a light yellow hat and I had a dark yellow hat. So I just changed to a dark yellow hat in case everyone's wondering what the hell is she talking about? Yeah, this is working for me more now. So now I'm like ready to get into it. So (laughs) your company looks awesome. I saw that Headley and Bennett, you guys are creating handcrafted aprons and you're in over 4,000 restaurants and coffee shops, which is wild and crazy. So your story seems like one that I want to go back to the early days, like before, you know, you were in all these restaurants and coffee shops, how did you start? Like, how did you even get into this industry? So I used to cook professionally. I worked at a two Michelin star restaurant, hated our uniforms, and I wanted to make them better. I wanted to make people feel empowered and awesome. And, you know, you hear, oh, she has an apron company. And you might think frilly, curly aprons, but I need you to stop what you're doing right now. Like go to our website to headleyambedded.com and check it out because you'll understand pretty immediately that we are the polar opposite of that. We are a really awesome collection of colorful, very well-made, very high quality products, which are kitchens, gear, and aprons. Okay. And it, it began with this like idea of just make a good apron for the restaurant world, make the perfect apron. And it quickly evolved into this giant community of chefs that also felt like they needed that same product. And it was just me out of my house, out of my mini Cooper running to farmers markets, talking to chefs, really doing a very grassroots marketing approach to everything because frankly, I didn't have any investors. I didn't have any outside capital. I had me, myself and I against the world and my product. So I began with that and just built off of it, reinvested every penny I made back into the business and grew it chunk by chunk, brick by brick. And it took it took time, but I, I believe that the good things take time. So I, yep. I've, been, I've been happy with our journey. We are eight years in now. Awesome. So for anyone who has not worked in the restaurant business, which I have, but I've not been back in the kitchen. I was like yeah. server, bartender, shot girl. Yeah. Hey, uh, but, <laughs> but if you're, you know, what makes a bad apron and what did you hear when you're going out and interviewing people and kind of doing that market research to you know, create what you have today, which is an awesome, but sturdy looking apron. I saw one on your website with really cool pockets, but it was like very trendy, but also looked durable. Like how did you get there? And what were you wearing before we were like, this sucks? Yeah, totally. So before Headley and Bennett was born, aprons were very much just a commodity of something you didn't think about. You didn't look at. It was just a very, very thin piece of material, probably made out of polyester Uh, with a strap that wrapped around your neck and that hung probably below your boobs, like really not fitting on a man or a woman or whoever. Um, And it also was just, it had like shoelace strings around the waist. Uh, It didn't adjust in any way. And that was it. There was nothing else to it. And what I did with Headley and Bennett is We made it a whole world. We made it a community. We made it mean something. And from the get-go, we had people like Martha Stewart and David Chang and Nancy Silverton. And, you know, if you watch any show on TV right now, from Top Chef to any show on the Food Network, you will see this little red and on the chest. And that is the Headley and Bennett apron. Well, okay. You just jumped right to the crazy success story now. Now you've (laughs) piqued my interest. How did you get in front of Martha Stewart? How did you secure, you know, all these partnerships like that? That's crazy. 
believe it or not, and this is very, this is the 80 year old within me. I always say I'm like an 80 year, I'm secretly an 80 year old man because I, I do things the old school way sometimes. Um, I believe in really high quality always. And from day one, we made a product that really worked. And I've always listened to our customers deeply. Like, do you know what an NPS score is? Yeah. Yes. Promoter okay. score. Yep. Yes. Uh, so our NPS score is 80. Okay. And that is, that's like very high above industry standard, which ranges in the 60 camp. Mm-hmm. And we are constantly at like 80 plus. And the reason we're in that camp is because we've never skimped on the quality of details. Like the fabrics that we use are everything from Japanese denims to Italian chambrays to materials that you can beat up again and again and again. And this thing is going to last you forever. So you have the craziest chefs out there in the world wearing our products for so many years. Believe me, I got feedback throughout the years. So these kinds of guys, like they just love the quality. They love that it had a point of view and that you could have a your own vibe you didn't just need to be wearing a white apron. Why not have yourself have like an identity in the kitchen that was more than just strap a white apron on? Yeah. But how did you get in front of them? Did you send them free samples to try and show them the quality? Like, how did you even get in front of these top chefs? A lot of it was word of mouth. Okay. Uh, so one chef would take it to an event and another chef would see that little red patch on the chest and be like, what is that? And then they'd say, oh, there's a girl. Her name's Ellen. The they would call me the quote unquote apron lady. Uh, you got to contact Ellen. She's making awesome stuff. It, these were the early days of Instagram. And when I went and met with David Chang, for example, in New York, I was introduced to him by a chef I met in LA. The chef from LA was like, if you're ever in New York, let me know. And I, of course, let him know. So I reached out before I showed up to New York and I was like, chef, I'm coming to New York. I'm so excited to come see your spot you know, I was very interested in what he was doing and I happened to have aprons with me. So I obviously was going to show him when I was in New York. And he said, yeah, come by my restaurant. I stopped by, I showed him aprons. He bought some from me. And then he's like, how else can I help you? I was like, you know what? I'd love to meet a few other chefs. Who do you know? And he's like, oh, David Chang's a good friend. I'm like, can you reach out to him right now for me? I'll come over today. And he was like, yeah, sure. And so then that chef emailed David Chang. He responded in like an hour later, I was standing inside Momofuku convincing David Chang to buy aprons from me. And David was like, I don't know who you are. Like what? Like he was really nice, but there was nothing about Headley and Bennett that existed the way it does now in the industry. But I was so excited at the idea of getting him aprons that I, I was like, all right, do you need it on consignment? Do you need net 60? What do you need? I'm going to give it to you, but I'm not walking out of here without you wearing Headley and because I promise you, you're going to love it. And I, I had enough conviction in my product that I knew mm-hmm. once he actually had his team wearing it, they would love it. And it, you know, sure enough, David Chang and his restaurants have worn Headley and Bennett for six plus years now. So, and did they buy that day when you're like, I'm not walking out of here? They did. They ordered 50 aprons, custom aprons from me. And he's like, I don't even know how you did that, but all right, I'm excited. And I was like, yay. And then I took a picture with him, put it on Instagram and just using what I had, honestly, it was like focus on what you have and not what you don't have. And I was like, I have myself, I have this great product and I have a new customer. I'm going to talk about it. It was very basic, but I kept doing that again and again and again. And the flywheel just started spinning. Yeah. I mean, and that's such a good reminder too, about asking, you know, your current customers or your network for 
referrals. I think a lot of people yes. feel awkward and uncomfortable about doing that, especially when you make a sale to someone to then be like, and now I'm going to ask for that extra thing. But I found that usually people always say yes. Like, yes, I'll try and find someone else in my network to help you. Yes, there's someone else that I know, but they wouldn't think about, you know, offering that up right from the beginning. Right. But when you ask it, it's like all these doors open. I think not enough people ask though. I agree. And one of the things that I've always championed within our organization is never treating people like a transaction. So when you are being friends with people and you actually care about them and you're not just caring about making that sale, people are willing and much more willing to help you. And also if you are excited about what you're doing and you genuinely are there because you're trying to help in some capacity, I've, I've just found that everyone is willing to get on that bandwagon. Like when that chef reached out to David Chang, he, you know, he's like, this girl's got, she's got hustle. She's figuring it out. She's got this business. Like they appreciate when people try. Right. And yeah. so you just kind of want to help people that are out there going yeah. out of their comfort zones. Yep. Yeah. I completely agree. So how did you go about, I mean, getting back to the earlier days, like you're not a designer, you didn't have, you know, background in that. What was it like getting into that industry and trying to figure out like, how do I get a product manufactured? How do I pivot that when I have feedback, you know, something's going wrong? Like, what did that look like? And what were some of the lessons from those early early days? I had some orders go south very frequently at the beginning, and they were very Mm -hmm. expensive as a tiny, small business. One of them, you know, being Brian Voltaggio, uh, he ordered he, the biggest order I had ever gotten, uh, I think it was 150 aprons. And, uh, we had a mishap in, in sewing land and the people, the, the sewers just didn't get it done in time. And we were okay. on them and we were hounding them and they had a restaurant opening. And so you can imagine delivering 150 aprons after the restaurant opens on the other side of the United States is not right. And, uh, we had to just like suck it up and make it, make it right. I refunded part of it. I overnighted stuff. I covered the costs of it. I called the assistant and spoke to her personally and said, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm so sorry. This is what occurred. Like it's on us. We really messed up and we're going to make it right. And just owning your mistakes, especially when you're a small business hiding behind emails. It's, this is where my 80 year old man comes out. Like pick up the phone. There's nothing like human contact, especially when things go south. Do mm-hmm. not try and resolve a problem or a deeply rooted issue on an email. Like have the balls to call the person and fix it. And people really appreciate that. It's like for as technologically savvy as we all are, human connection will never surpass an email. I mean, the other way around, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was a lot of what I did at the beginning when things went south, I would pick up the phone and call people and be like, Tom, tell me what happened. How can we make this right? We'll take care of it. And we bid it many times where we covered costs on stuff. Was it usually delays type of issues? It was delays or there were errors on the fabric, or maybe it was a new fabric we were testing. We we didn't test because we didn't even know to test fabrics. And so Mm -hmm. maybe it bled on their clothes. I mean, you name it, it happened. And at most of the time, you know, there were times when customers absolutely were like, nope, you ruined it. And we had to go out and find other customers. But Overall, we were always very humble about our mistakes and just listened, fixed, and course corrected 
pretty immediately. So if there was an issue with one type of material and we had several customers, we would proactively reach out to the other customers and say, hey, turns out there's something wrong with this. We need to fix it. You know, we'd like to recover those products. We'll send you other ones. Like, let's let's make it right. Yep. Got it. So how, how do you go about ingesting feedback now that you're in, you know, the 4,000 plus restaurants and locations? Like, how do you take feedback like you did in the early days, which yeah. was probably much more like one off where you're like, oh, good tip. I'm going to change it. What yeah, do you do yeah, now exactly. with everything coming in? Right. Yeah. Back in the day, I was the windshield to the business. Yeah. So I could kind of take it all in uh, every single bit. Now we have a pretty kind of extensive set of meetings and spreadsheets from every part of the business. So our social team online is feeding information in from Instagram and TikTok and direct messages that we get. I also, my platform at, at Ellen Marie Bennett is pretty front and center too. So people will reach out to me directly and mm-hmm. say things when they're, when things are wrong, you hear about it. Uh, so I, I funnel that over to our social team and then they aggregate it all and have a weekly meeting, uh, like an interdepartmental meeting between marketing and sales and production to ensure that those things are getting changed or fixed. You know, you, you can put a lot of, um, technology behind that and, and aggregate surveys and things of that nature too, which we do. But I've found that just getting the right people on a cadence of a a phone call has been really helpful to ensure that our, you know, our e-com team is making corrections to the site where things are difficult for customers or our product team hears about that one trending topic where, you know, this one apron is wrinkling in a way that none of the other ones do. So then we start course correcting on that. So Mm -hmm. in one of our values as a company is never stop improving. So we are constantly tinkering and fixing and tweaking and editing and adjusting. And because we're also controlling the supply chain, it's easy for us to do that. It's, it's not like we make products one year out and then we can't adjust it. We're, we're constantly adapting it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really great. Con- controlling that entire process from start to finish. Yeah. As you've started to scale and grow and you bring on you know, more executives onto the team, you've got a CFO. Have you ever felt a pull to kind of sacrifice quality here and there, you know, in the pursuit of better margins? Because that seems like something a lot of businesses struggle with as they get bigger. Uh, Sometimes there's a point where you're like, "Eh, I remember the early days with like, it used to be this. And now, you know, have you felt any of that pull yet? And if so, how do you think about that? Such a great question. Honestly, I've found that because we have a bigger team, we are able to scale with more infrastructure, it's just easier. And we actually have time to negotiate and we actually have time to buy in bigger volume uh, Mm -hmm. on raw materials. So it helps our margin in the long run. So we've actually been able to maintain a lot of the same suppliers we used from the get-go, but grow with them because I started with them with, you know, one roll of fabric and now we're buying tens of thousands of rolls monthly. It's a very different relationship and they really appreciate us because also back to my being an 80 year old man days, I never had any debt and I always paid everybody on time. So our Mm -hmm. vendors really valued us and value us to this day because we're not on like net 60 terms or anything with them. We pay them every month with no delays. So that, that creates a lot of um, partnership 
right? They want to help you because you've always helped them. So I've actually found the margin has gone up as we've scaled versus gone down. Like there was a long time there in Headley and Bennett land that we sacrificed quite a lot of margin to hit the quality that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we did it anyway, because we believe in quality first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And such a good point too, of like, if you're scaling and growing, your margins should get better. You don't always have to sacrifice on quality, but especially leaning into that relationship with your yeah. partners can yeah. really work wonders, which is great. Exactly. And, and just because somebody's price, what they offer you is the price that they're offering you doesn't mean you can't have a conversation. Just like I asked that chef, you know, yeah. do you know anybody? It's like, Hey guys, is there anything else we can do to get this down? Are there other costs that we can adjust to bring, bring your costs down? Is there anything we can do on our end to help, you know, mitigate some of this? And you find ways of being collaborative and your partners tend to say, yes, it's not just hardballing them and like, trying to squeeze a penny down, but really listening to them and listening to your needs and finding a happy medium, a solution. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So at what point did you start to think about introducing new products? I mean, you're, you know, like, when were you like, now's the time to, you know, have a new product come live? Yeah. So when we first started, everything was pretty much B2B. So business to business, and the company, all of these restaurants that we were in and the chefs we were outfitting, like that was our bread and butter. And mm-hmm. it, it created a lot of great cash flow because we would take a deposit at the beginning and ship the product once it was made, collect the other half. And that the business was able to grow in that way. Organically, though, behind the scenes, our D2C, our direct consumer business was growing because all these people were seeing us on Food Network or Top Chef. Or you'd see that little red square ampersand patch on the chest and say, what is that? Oh, my favorite chef is wearing it. I want to wear it. So we were building this like online presence without even meaning to in a way. And I wanted to make product that resonated with all of our kind of newer customers online and make something special for our restaurant customers. So I thought collaborations, that's the best way to do it. And that's where I got our toes dabbled into the world of new product. And we started with, uh, I believe one of our early collaborations was with The Hundreds, which is a really cool streetwear brand here in LA. Uh, Then we did something with Parachute Home. We've since gone on to do a collaboration with Vans and Madewell. But every single one of those collaborations brought us new eyeballs. It brought us new community. And it brought something really fun to talk about. And we never did it with anyone we didn't actually believe was a good partnership, right? It's like when you see a brand team up with, I don't know, they could be something totally different and they team up with like an air, an airline. And you're like, what, what is, what does that even mean? What are you guys doing? We never did that. It it always had to be genuine. And Mm -hmm. that really helped us get into new products because we were able to test and see what people responded to. So we launched a line of chef socks with this one company called Rich or Poor. And everyone was like, chef socks? What What do you even mean with that? And oh my God, these chef socks, to this day, we still sell them. And we have an ongoing partnership now where they make our socks. Um, and we what buy chef socks. Like, is it just comfier, thicker? They're compression. So you could wear oh, them. Like they okay, have got compression, it. but they're super colorful because obviously Headley Men's a really colorful, fun company. Yeah. Um, and got they it. also have fun sayings at the bottom. So it'll say like, wake up and fight or whatever. So you've got, you put your socks on and you get out there and like kick ass at life. 
So that was a way that we got to test a new product, be resourceful, right? Because we didn't have to go make our own supply chain to create socks. And then we were able to tap into their network of of community and world. Um, So yeah. What does the breakout of work look like when you're partnering with someone like a Madewell? Because maybe it's not like a sock company that's like, we'll make the socks, you know, you target them to your audience, we'll do our thing. Like, what does it look like if it's more of a big brand or like a Vans where it's like, okay, you've got your designs and things like that. Like who's doing what work? Yeah, such a good question. So when we did our collab with Madewell, we created the aprons, like we Mm -hmm. manufactured them and they manufactured all of the apparel. So we did a jumpsuit and shirts and bandanas and a few other items. I think it was like a 12 piece collection. And Mm -hmm. uh, all the aprons were made by us. The designs came from their design team combined with our input and edits. And the way we did it was we brought the function and the core base. And then they brought the design elements that they wanted to kind of plug in from the world of Madewell. Those are the best collaborations. When you find somebody that does something that you don't do and vice versa. So with Vans, it's like they make shoes. We don't you know, we made aprons, they don't with made well, we make really high pro grade, you know, high function product that's really beautiful and lasts forever. And they have great design. So you bring those two yeah. together and you end up with a jumpsuit that's made out of a beautiful stretch denim that has a, you know, a towel loop on the side for towels for when you're cooking, but is also snaps instead of buttons. So you can get in and out of it. Cause if you're going to go pee while you're cooking or whatever. You, you don't have time to sit there and unbutton 40 buttons. So just thinking about it um, from a function standpoint, it really ended up being a perfect collaboration. Yeah. And do they feel pretty similar? Or is it very one-off, like very different kind of relationships? Because I'm even thinking about like who, like how do you break up, you know, the sales or who gets what, you know, on the back end? I think it's really important when people are doing collaborations to be very open at the beginning about what your end goal is. And for Madewell, we really wanted to tap into their audience and they wanted to tap into ours. So it was like, okay, we're going to go heavy into marketing. I also really wanted to make a jumpsuit. We had never done workwear in that capacity. And so they were like, great, we'll make those products. You make the aprons. We'll hit that consumer from a home and pro angle, but with the same product and it, and it was a perfect split. So you work it out based on what everybody's needs are. And you kind of like lay out all your cards on the table. And if someone is a bigger company, typically the larger company will cover more of, let's say the marketing costs, right? So Madewell did a lot of the photo shoot for our collaboration, or when we did our launch with Vans, we did a huge party with them we had it at our 16,000 square foot factory in LA, but then they brought, you know, people from the strokes to perform. Yeah. So it is go vans. I mean, music is their world. So yeah. that, that is how it ends up being really effective. You, you have to both pool in and pitch in from both sides or else yeah. it's not really a collaboration. It's not really a partnership. You're inventing some false thing behind the scenes in marketing land for like a good reason to talk to your audience, but everyone can smell through these days. Like if it isn't genuine, don't do it. Yeah. Have you had any uh, partnership fails? You don't have to say any of the names. Have you you been like, Oh, this didn't work out. And here's maybe why, or what I would avoid next time that this is why it didn't work out well. Yeah. I, I love that you asked me that because 
truthfully, at the beginning, at the early days of Headley and Bennett, we did so many partnerships with so many people. And we said yes to everything because we were learning, we were exploring, we were trying things. And mm-hmm. I found that a lot of times we had the um, kind of chutzpah and initiative to make it work. And yeah. sometimes the other side didn't. And so we found that we were doing a lot of the work, a lot mm-hmm. of times, not in any of the partnerships I mentioned, but somebody would reach out and they say, oh my gosh, we love your brand. We'd love to collaborate. And next thing you know, we're like throwing them a party. And I'm like, wait, why is our marketing department throwing a party for a brand that like doesn't even have any of their people coming in to support or help? And so, you know, we kissed some frogs and learned what we needed to ask. And I don't, I don't fault anyone for it, but it's just learning to say no is just as important to learning to say yes. You need Mm -hmm. to be able to draw the line. But if I hadn't, if our team hadn't done all those different events, I don't know that we would have learned that. So we learned it the hard way, but it's sometimes experience teaches you. Yep. Yeah. I love that. And how long does a, um, I'm diving deep because I've not talked about partnerships a lot on this show. So that's why I'm really going in. Yeah. 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 Go for it. When do you start seeing the ROI kind of trail off? Like at what point does the excitement die down? And then you kind of are like, okay, on to the next partnership or how long does it normally last? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. Um, let's say it, it kind of depends on how much ramp up you make to the partnership or the collaboration and then how quickly the product sells out. So mm-hmm. I'll give you one example. We did a, we did a big print with a, a print collection with a company called rifle paper company. I don't know if you know who that is, but if you Google that, you will recognize the floral print. So we did a a print with them and we had a 40,000 person um, like sign up wait list for Mm -hmm. when the product launched. And that was done three weeks before the product launched. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to kind of pull in all these people top of funnel and bring them in and have them be excited about it. And we were hitting them with different emails, talking about the product and when it was going to land. And then once the product landed, it was pretty exciting for, I'd say, um, I'd say like about a month. It was, Mm -hmm. it was that time. And that product sold very well and drove a lot of traffic for the entire period. It was not sold out. So we had it up, I think for two and a half months. And this was like three years ago. Now everything, it feels so accelerated. It's like, you get a product up, it's cool. Then something happens. And then the United States like implodes in some way. And then we're off to the races to talk about that. And then, you know, something happens on Reddit and then it goes over there. So (laughs) I don't know. I think the news cycle and everything else has sped up dramatically from 2017. So yeah, I'd say like a good two, two two-ish months um, Mm -hmm. is, is usually the range. And with them, we did lots of social media posts on both accounts. And so she was posting about it. We were posting about it. And that helped kind of just build hype and momentum on it. And then once it sold out, it was gone. And then people were bummed because they didn't get it. So when we brought it back, like almost a year later for a, a limited drop, it mm-hmm. sold so fast. Like I think it was gone in like a couple of weeks. So I want to circle back a little bit to the B2B to D2C yeah. transition. Yes. And talk about like, how did you guys think about, you know, your tech stack and your website? Because, you know, when you're doing B2B orders, they're probably used to a different, sometimes archaic system of like, I'm used to logging in and making my purchase or talking to my guy at the, you know, this location. 
Like, how did you think about that switch? And did you really change, you know, the user interface and how customers were interacting? Or did you just kind of like let it go and see if they would adapt to your new D2C way of selling? Right. Yeah, we have a we have a pretty uh, unique uh, kind of split in our organization because you have one team managing two very, very different channels yeah. with very different customers. And when we were smaller, it was manageable and you could figure it out. But now that we've grown so much and that we are, we're now 80% direct to consumer. It's a mm-hmm. dramatically different tech stack. It's a dramatically yeah. different backend. Um, but, but 80% because the pie just grew bigger. Like you still probably have a lot of those yeah, B2B right. ones. The pie just got bigger. That's yeah, right. Okay, got it. That's right. So <laughs> it used to be 50-50. And now it's 80, 20, but mm-hmm. growth on all levels. It just, yeah, to your point, the 80% D to C really um, surpassed the B2B. So we would blend everything, which was really painful. It was really mm-hmm. hard because you had one customer service team servicing a chef who needed something yeah. for his opening. And then you had like Maria from Minnesota calling in who needed a, you know, a strap change on her apron and you had like two people helping both. So that was a little confusing and convoluted, but we were too small to be able to do anything more and to resource it fully uh, in a different way. And now that the business has expanded, we actually broke out B2B and created its own P&L. It has its own P&L. It has its own team and its own sales force that We've always had a separate sales force, but it was blended into the rest of the company. Now it's like fully broken out. And on the back end, we are automating it. So we're creating a portal where our B2B customers can go log on, get the discounts and have it be a little bit more easy and automated for them. Yeah. So what portal are you finding success with? Because I could see a lot of businesses wanting to go the other way. Like there's a ton of D2C right now. And B2B yeah. is sometimes where people also, they wish to be. So yeah. what backend, like what tech are you using to make that easy from a login perspective versus, you know, consumer? We have basically cloned our site and have done a wholesale site as a V1 and are working on based off of that, seeing like what works and what doesn't. I've also gone the polar opposite direction when we've done, when we added new things on, like last year, we built a brand new site from head Mm -hmm. to, to toe. And everything was new and we tested nothing. And that was not great either. So we kind of over-indexed on like, let's go really basic with the B2B Mm -hmm. portal and learn what is and isn't working. And then build off of that with, you know, surveys and conversations with our B2B customers to learn what is working and what isn't. Sometimes you don't have the resources. Sometimes you don't have the time. You have to find what works for your company and perfect sometimes gets in the way of progress. So for a B2B, we just said, let's do a portal. It'll be easier. It'll help our sales team. A lot of our, a lot of our leads are inbound um, because Mm -hmm. people just like love our products. So they reach out to us, have them just buy straight from inventory uh, without talking to someone. That's great. I always hate when it's like contact us to, and we'll let you know the pricing on things. I'm like, what if I just want to buy? Exactly. Let me, let me pay you. And we got that feedback from our customers where they're like, Hey, I have a restaurant. I'm working all day. I don't always have time, even though your staff is awesome. I don't have time to wait for, you know, Kate to get back to me. I need to just order this and be done with it. 
And so we thought, oh, okay, let's just do this online and, and, and take it from there. So that's how B2B has kind of evolved and begun to stand on its own two feet, like next to D2C. That's cool. And do you allow for customization within that um, platform? Offline, online, that would have cost us like $100,000 to build that feature. And Uh I'm just not sure that we're ready to make that commitment because we're still on V1. We'll learn and see how how much demand we get. We have an entire ERP system offline that you can do customization. Uh, within, within Headley and Bennett, but you do have to talk to a sales rep. Um, yeah, that seems like a tricky place. I'm even thinking about companies like swag.com, which we've had on the show and I've used them before and thinking yeah. about like trying to even get this logo I'm pointing to my hoodie that I'm yeah. wearing, yeah. like was hard for, and I had, there was many times back and forth and it's a good yes. thing. They were like, mm, Steph, that's like weirdly centered or that's like too big. It was yeah. actually helpful having someone tell me like, that looks crappy. Uh, let us help you. <laughs> yeah, so it is definitely merging an old school industry that required a lot of handholding to optimizing it in ways where people are willing to make a few concessions because they want the ease or they want the speed. And they're like, okay, fine. I won't talk to Kate, but I'll get to order it right now. Maybe I won't get embroidery, but I'll get the aprons by Monday. Right. And so you just kind of have those trade-offs and people are willing to make them. Yep. All right. And the last thing I want to talk about before we hop into the lightning round is your facility in LA. It's known and it's kind of famous for its features. I think I read it had like tree houses or zip lines. And after meeting you now, I'm like actually not surprised at all. (laughs) But tell me a little bit about how you thought about building your facility in LA and why you built it that way. Yeah. So when we got the factory about six years ago, it was an awful giant ugly, ugly building. And my team thought she's lost it. What are we doing here in the middle of Vernon and, you know, next to downtown LA. And so I thought, no guys, we're going to build a kitchen and we're going to add a zip line and there's going to be a slide and tree houses and it's going to be amazing. And everything's going to be done here. And none of that existed in the building, but I had a vision of how I wanted it to be. And, you know, sure enough, we now have all of those pieces in here. And we teamed up with Samsung and built this gorgeous kitchen where we've hosted a lot of events. And it's, it's been an, a really wild evolution of Headley and Bennett going from this, you know, very chef oriented company to now this very home cook oriented business, you know, yep. with so many more customers than just our restaurant customers. Uh, but at the heart of it, it's still a kitchen. And in yeah. our in our factory, the kitchen still brings our B2B and our D2C customers together. Now we, you know, shoot videos for TikTok and social media and Instagram out of that kitchen. But yet we also used to host cookbook events for, you know, a chef that was launching a book. So kitchens yeah. at our heart, no matter what we do in Headley and Bennett land, whether it's B2B or D2C, it will always be connected to, to that core, which is empowering and inspiring people to cook. That's Awesome. Yeah. And such a good reminder too, of how to really get the most use of a space. So many people buy it for just like one little small purpose. And then when that purpose is gone, they're like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have maybe gotten that retail location. But for you, it's like you're using it for social and video and events, which hopefully will come back soon. So Yeah. yeah, super smart. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's in Headley and Bennett's DNA. We just, we're all about multi-use, being resourceful and having everything have a dual function. You know, our aprons are not just for chefs. They're also for home cooks. They're for potters and painters and, you know, designers can wear them to protect their clothes. So it's kind of for everyone, but built specifically with chefs in mind. Awesome. 
All right, well, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask a question and you have 30 seconds or less now. To okay. Answer. All right, first one, what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Ooh, uh, the one thing in e-commerce. It's such a, it's such a uh, cliche word, but it's the truth. I, I do believe that authenticity and brands that are real brands, not just pretty packaging, and then you get a product inside the pretty packaging. I believe those are the brands that will survive. They're people that care about what they're actually making. And they believe in that product, having longevity and life and more than just like one click. And then your customer is upset because you felt they felt bamboozled. So quality and authenticity in the products that you are making are always going to be important in e-com next year and the year after. Yep. Love that. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Every person that has said yes and no to me has always, I I believe all the yeses and nos that I've ever gotten have been the nicest thing that I've ever gotten because they've opened and shut different doors along the way that have forced me to be resourceful, that have forced me to experience hardship and have forced me to experience amazing feelings. And when you have a robust set of life experiences, you can tackle more things. Never think about, oh my God, woe is me. This happened to me. It's like, hell yes, that you got through that and that you now have that notch on your life belt of experience. And I just, I believe you got to live life and feel life and go through the ups and the downs of it to come out on the other side with like that much more, you know, context. And then you have that much more to pull from. Reach. That is a good one. That's one of my favorite answers so far. What's up next on your reading list? My book. I uh, tell me about it. Yeah, (laughs) I am. uh, I wrote a book. It took me two and a half years, and it launches in April. And I yes, it launches with uh, Penguin Random House, and it's called Dream First, Details Later: How to Quit Overthinking It and Make It Happen. So that sounds good. That is high. That's high up on my reading list. Also, I'm obsessed with the entire series of Lencioni books. Like, okay. uh, it's, it's very, actually don't know what that is. very nerdy, but it's like the five dysfunctions of a team, death by meetings, the advantage, oh, got it, got it. they're all these like storytelling books that are yep. about business and they're digestible and easy reads. So I, I have, okay. I make my entire leadership team read all of them when they join. <laughs> That's good. And I can't wait to read your book. That also sounds yes. really good. What's your favorite e-commerce tool that you're experimenting with right now, or you're having success with? So it's not directly e-com, but it really helps it. And it's called Dash Hudson. And it is a really incredible social media tool that gives, drives a ton of data and analytics and helps kind of show your team how much, like we have a hard time figuring out how much traffic is being driven from social and where and how much how many purchases are coming from it. So this has given us a heavy dose of visibility, um, which just gives you more, you know, you're more empowered if you have more data and you can track things. So I really love Dash Hudson. Cool. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. All right, Ellen. Well, it's been a blast having you on. Obviously you're super fun. Your company's amazing. Where can people find out more about you and Headley and Bennett? Yes, they have to go to our website, www.headleyandbennett.com, and that's H-E-D-L-E-Y, 
And then our Instagram and our TikTok also Hedley and Bennett. And my personal account is Ellen Marie Bennett. Our TikTok is highly amazing and packed with great videos about tips and tricks for the kitchen and how to just make you a badass when you're cooking, whether you like cooking or not. So go follow all of them. And I have a pet pig that's 200 pounds. That's that enough would, of a reason. Yeah. To that, one, you. that one's on Ellen Marie Bennett. So, you know, just go join our wild world on the internet and say <laughs> hi, say you, you heard me on this podcast and thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. This was so much fun. Yeah, agree. We'll have to have you back and then maybe you'll bring your pet pig and we'll call it like a round table with your pet. That's great. With Oliver. <laughs> yeah, with Oliver. That's my son's name. How perfect. Oh my Same. Gosh. Amazing. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ellen. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.